Um, now, we're going to get to know you a bit about your ministry in a minute, but uh, first of all, folk have got these on their chairs. Um, why have they got something from CPAS on their chairs, John? Um, Andrew, thank you very much for the um, chance to be here with you at all, to be here this morning, and just for a couple of minutes to say something about um, this. For those of you who don't know, CPS is one of the Church of England's historic mission agencies. There are ten of us. CPS has been around since 1836, and over that time we've done all kinds of things to help increase the mission effectiveness of local churches. That was our 1836, as it were, mandate, and that's what we've tried ever since then to be true to. And um, these days, we, if you imagine a three-drawer filing cabinet with labels on them that say patronage, leadership training, and summer holidays for young people, that describes in a nutshell what we get up to at this particular time. And I put together in an envelope here just one or two bits of paper that, uh, that have got things that might be of particular interest to you guys. So the first is this thing called the Arrow Leadership Programme. Um, I, I would be so bold as to say this is the, the most respected and valued leadership development programme in the Church of England. Um, I have nothing to do with it. It's James Lawrence overseas, so I'm not blowing my own trumpet. Um, most bishops and archdeacons will tell you if you're going to do one leadership development thing, this is the thing to do. The downside is it's not cheap, but you'd be amazed how generous dioceses are in supporting you for Arrow. So if you're interested in that, looking ahead, um, have a look at that. Um, secondly, there's one of our little magazines, Catalyst, so you can read some stories, a bit more about what we get up to. Growing Leaders, how many of you are familiar with the Growing Leaders resource? Okay, not many. Um, this has been around for 14 years, I think it is now, and um, well over a thousand parishes have used it. Um, I'm told that it's one of the most practical resources to help in the business of the training of lay leaders within the church. So if you know nothing about that, have a look at this little card there. Um, there's another little card with a heading lead on. Every six weeks we send out a little email um, to those who sign up for it with a number of leadership development resources, a couple of articles, a couple of books or videos to refer to, that kind of stuff. The important thing about this e-bulletin of a resource is it's entirely free and we never ask you for money. It, this is intended to support your leadership, not to finance and support CPS. So um, if that's something you might be interested, just fill in the back your email address and name, give it to me, and I'll make sure you go on the list. About 5,500 leaders currently receive this um, in the UK. PCC tonight, whether you love them or loathe them, you are all going to have to work with PCCs um, in the years to come. And uh, some years ago, we did a bit of research uh, which discovered that most PCCs have 12 common dysfunctions. Now, someone said to me, that was a cheap bit of research, John, because if you came to ours, there's way <laughs> more um, than 12. But out of that piece of research, we produced a resource that helps the PCC ask two questions. One is, what are we really here for? And secondly, how can we work better as a PCC? Uh, and again, um, we've lost count of the number of churches, but we know it's a full-figure sum of churches who have actually used this, um, either in its entirety or part of it. And we are told again and again, both wonderfully, but also depressingly, how this has changed their PCC. Wonderfully, because I think that's great if you're now more mission effective and you're working well together depressingly, because I'm thinking, what were these PCCs doing before? Um, so it's a great resource, very practical, and look on our website for training events. There's something about our ventures. So how many of you are, are familiar with ventures already? Yeah, a good number. Um, three, three and a half thousand youngsters were on holidays this summer. I visited a couple of them. Wonderful. 
to see these youngsters, some of whom don't really know the gospel, hearing explained to them, reading scripture together, etc., etc. Keep your eye on something new called schools ventures. Because we've worked out that the way really to increase and expand this ministry is not to pump churches where by and large young people are not, it's to make a link with schools. So we've done a deal with a number of bishops in several dioceses. We've been running these for the last two or three years as pilots. We've got a million pound expansion plan going to the trustees this autumn to ramp this up over the next six years um, all over the diocese. We're hoping to have four and a half thousand kids from schools every year go on these ventures who've perhaps never heard the gospel before by 2025, every year. It's a big plan and um, you'll hear more about that going forwards. Um, if you are about to move or wanting to move, there's something about new clergy posts. And if you've got young people, say 16 to 25 in your congregation, who you think God might be calling to explore a lifetime of paid ministry um, of one sort or another, um, this is a fabulous little resource. It's not a book, it's a set of cards, and it enables you to have a conversation with them. Um, things about how do you see yourself what Bible verses uh, have spoken to you, what stops you from offering yourself um, in leadership in this church, those kinds of conversation starters. Have a look at it again online. I'm sure that's far too long, but I can't resist. I'm following my good friend Lee, who uses every single opportunity unashamedly to promote his wares. And his chair of council fully backs him in doing that. <laughs> but, but I noticed that you threw all yours on the floor, so <laughs> I, hope, I hope we do something. Anyway, uh, John, come to the mic as well. Um, now, obviously you work in a national role, we'll, we'll hear a bit more about that in a moment, but before you were called to a national role, you had a long experience of mm. parish ministry, mm. can you tell us a little bit about what mm. ministry yeah. you were in? Yeah, thank you. Uh, first and foremost, um, I, I mean, you're right, people now say, well, John, you do this at a national level, but for, first and foremost, and in my heart, um, I'm with the local church. Um, I grew up in a local church. Um, I was actually born into a Leicestershire rectory. Um, local church has been um, part of my life literally from day one. And um, as um, uh, a young professional, I was a probation officer um, when I first started work, um, I had what I would call the Damascus Road calling to ordain ministry in the Church of England. It was a Thursday afternoon. I can still remember, um, I can still remember hearing a voice. Um, it, was, it was actually a human voice. But, but I felt as though it was God speaking, um, you know, human words, but, but, but God's voice. And um, uh, I, I went to see my DDO, and in those days, things happened very straightforwardly. We had half an hour on Saturday morning, and he said, yeah, I'll send you to a BAP, and that was it. Um, I was there through the BAP and ordained. I mean, how things have changed um, over the years. Um, and, and following that, I went off to Trinity Bristol, uh, and I spent then, after that, 20 years in uh, local parishes. So I spent... Um, uh, quite a bit of time in Wakefield Diocese, I'm um, in Huddersfield, um, and then from there went down to Essex, Diocese of Chelmsford, where for um, 13 plus years I was incumbent of um, a parish at the end of the district line going directly east um, out of London. Um, uh, no, that's, that's oh, west, sorry. East, east, towards the Dartford Tunnel. Uh, yeah. And um, I, I was there for 14 years. We, we had a fantastic time. I mean, you, you know what parish life is like. There's the ups and downs. Um, there were plenty of downs. I had plenty of people who thought I was you know, a close relative of Satan um, for all kinds of reasons. We won't go into those now. Um, I w I'm not, and I wasn't. Um, uh, but we saw some great things. Thanks for um, clarifying. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that, make, that makes the next 45 minutes a lot easier for all of us. Yeah. So that's good. 
um, we had the joy of seeing, I, I never actually counted it, but I reckon somewhere between 150 and 200 people become Christians in that time. We saw some glorious conversions. Um, the one that sticks in my heart and mind from all those years is the white van driver, um, bit of a belly, skinhead, Essex boy, um, came in on one of our Alpha courses. I still to this day don't know why he turned up, um, but halfway th through the course he called me to one side. He said, John, can I have, he said, Vicar, can I have a word? I said, yes, we, we had a little word. He said, um, I've got a problem. I said, what's that? He said, I stopped the van today and helped somebody. And I, I was waited for the rest of the story. And uh, he said, no, I don't do that, John. And I said, well, I, I think God's at work in you. And he said, oh, all right, thank you, Vicar. And, and he went away. The next week he came back to the next Alpha evening and he said to me, he said, Vicar, can I have another word? And I said, of course. And we sat down. And he said, um, someone came to the yard today. Now, you need to understand, this guy, when I said to him, what do you do for a living? He actually said a bit of this and a bit of that. That was his answer. Uh, and he ran um, a pallet. You know the pallets that you, you shift stuff around warehouses on? He ran a pallet yard down on the north shore of the Thames in Essex. Um, so the, the rougher kind of bit of Essex. And uh, he said, someone came into the yard today uh, and asked for tick, which meant, can I have some stuff and I'll pay you later? Um, uh, and um, I said, yes. And I said, well, that's, what's the problem? That, that's the way business works. You know, you send an invoice out, they pay. He says, no, you don't pay me, you'll break your legs. And he's dead straight. You know, this, this is the kind of guy. He was so gloriously converted. He is now running, and I still find this emotional, he's now running um, a charity that supports guys on the streets in the Ilford and bits of East London, takes no, sleeping bags out, all the rest of it. Yeah, okay. Total radical conversion. We saw that happen again and again and again um, in the lives of people um, in the local church. We built a new church. We re-established relationships with the local schools, which had gone pretty pear-shaped. Um, we saw all kinds of wonderful things happen. And um, yes, it's hard work. Um, yes, it's a struggle. But it's, it's just the greatest joy there is. So you, you can tell from the way I talk, that's where my heart, that's where my passion is. You can keep General Synod for as long as you like, brother. I just want a local church. That's um, I'm, what I'm really I'm not on General no, Synod. No, 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 I'm, yeah. I'm with you on that. Hallelujah. Yeah, yeah. I really, I mean, so that's, so that's, that's me, local church. And I now live in the parish of this good folk there, Stuart. Yeah. There he is go. now my parish priest. That's a nice Amazing. treat. Yeah, what that's good, treat. isn't it? That's yeah, great, yeah. yeah. Um, and just before you, you, you sort of share with us, mm. um, can you give us a sense of some of the things you've been involved with nationally? There's all sorts of things going on. No one can give the national picture. Mm. But you've been involved in some things nationally in the past few years. Can you just give us a sense yeah. of some of the things you might have been involved in? Um, in my 20 years in parishes, I spent most of my time um, avoiding everything beyond the parish boundaries. Um, you know, deanery synod, well, that's a group of Anglicans waiting to go home, isn't it? Um, I'm, I'm not sure that I made many deanery synods mm. in those years. Uh, I did, for some reason, find myself on diocesan synod for a short while, but I soon corrected my mistakes um, <laughs> there. Um, so, and again, forgive me if that sounds facetious. I'm just trying to indicate what my mindset was. I was very, very um, mission and parish focused. Um, and in 2005, I, I felt it was appropriate to stand for general synod. Um, I, I don't really know why, you know, I, I, I just did it. Um, and to cut a long story short, that started setting train a whole series of events that I never planned. I never had um, any intention or ambition to be part of General Synod or those kind of things. It's just kind of happened. And, and all I can say is either everything's gone wrong or God had his hand in it. Um, you can pay your money and take your choice. Um, assuming it's the latter, it, it really is by, you know, um, God's providential leadership that I've been on General Synod for 14 years now. Um, I had the um, 
privilege of being elected to chair the Evangelica Group on Journal Synod. We call that EGGS for short. I'll use that acronym this morning. Um, I've done that for several years now. Um, I was um, elected by the General Synod to serve on the Crown Nominations Commission seven years ago, so I've been on that um, ever since that. Um, I'm very involved in the Church of England. That basically means if you never want to be a bishop, then just be an idiot sometime this morning. And, and you've, you've blotted your copybook for life in front of a member of the CNC. That's great, isn't it? So just, just an idea there if you want just to avoid episcopacy. Sorry, carry on. Um, I'm involved with Amanda. Where's she gone? Uh, and, and Lee and others in the Church of England Evangelical Council. That's a group that was originally started by John Stott working with CPS and Church Society, if I remember rightly. Um, way back in the, was it late 50s or early 60s? I always get my dates mixed up on that. Um, but that was to bring together different evangelical groupings, theological colleges, etc., etc. And um, in the 60s and 70s, it was a pretty um, influential overseeing body in the evangelical world. Um, it fell into disrepair in the 90s and noughties. But about six years ago, we really had a bit of a resurrection there. Uh, and I think it's fair to say, and these guys will either back me up or challenge me, that um, I, I think right now CEC is providing a fabulous place where the different tribes, the New Wines, the Reforms, the EMAs, the Theological Colleges, the Diocesan Evangelical Fellowships, the Mission Agencies, the Patronage Organisations, it is a place where we do find um, one mind and heart at this particular time. Uh, and it's great for the fellowship it provides, but it's also great for the strategic coming together um, that it affords. So... Um, there's some of the ways. I mean, there are other things as well, but there are some of the ways that I've been um, enabled to serve on that national level, if that helps. That's brilliant. Shall I just pray for you? Mm, and then we'll... Um... Loving Heavenly Father, we thank and praise you for the joy of hearing how your hand's been on your servant, our brother John, over these years, for the different ways in which you've used him to glorify the Lord Jesus Christ. And we commit again our time together now seeking your blessing on John and everything he says, and on our minds and everything we hear, and on the questions and answers mm. at the end too. Father, we long to be faithful and useful in your kingdom. We long to be wise and bold in contending for the glorious gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Mm. So please be equipping us now, <clears throat> because we pray in Jesus' own name. Amen. 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 <clears throat> Um, can I first of all just say again, thank you. Um, it, it really is both a joy and a privilege um, to be um, with you here today. Um, I remember one or two faces from three or four years ago when I came um, to join you before. Um, it's always good to work with Lee on various things, um, but it's really encouraging to see um, so many um, gospel-shaped, gospel-minded young leaders um, meeting together. So, you know, I will go home encouraged tonight um, just from having been with you. Um, there are plenty of meetings that I go to that I don't go home encouraged from. Um, so thank you for the opportunity to have a good day. Um, yesterday was my first day back after holidays. So to be able to come here in the evening and spend a day with you um, before I even looked at my emails and all the rest of it is the right way to start the autumn. Um, so thank you so much um, for the um, opportunity. Um, uh, thank you to Andrew for welcoming me in the introduction. Um, really, it's out of um, what we finished by just explaining there, some of the um, positions and opportunities I've had over the last few years. It's out of that that I've been asked to speak this morning and to offer some kind, if you like, um, of an aerial view or take 
um, on the Church of England at the moment and how things look as we're going forward, particularly with two things in mind. Um, one is the whole debate about gender identity and human sexuality and how that's unfolding. Of course, I, I'm sure I don't need to explain to you that at the end of the day, um, that's the bit of the iceberg that's sticking above the water. There's a massive bit of the iceberg underneath uh, and it could be gender identity and sexuality above. It could be the uniqueness of Christ. It could be a number of other things. But that's the issue at the moment that is um, playing out um, the below-the-surface um, issues. Um, so, so it's partly with that in mind that um, I've been asked to make um, a few comments this morning. Uh, and secondly, because we have these general synod elections 2020. Next, this time next year, we'll be voting a new general synod ed. And there is every chance that the next general synod from 2020 to 2025 could make um, decisions that make it either easier or difficult for people like me to remain in ordained ministry um, in the Church of England. So if you're anything like me, um, what happens next summer and um, who is elected is a really important issue. So it's because of that, um, I think, that I've been asked to share with you some of these thoughts. I'm not going to get in my talk into the granularity of how do I stand for General Synod next year. If that's a question you want to ask, um, throw that in when we do some Q&A or have a word over coffee. Um, I'll say a little bit more about that um, uh, in that regard, in that way. Um, well, I don't know whether you're a half-empty or a half-full person, um, because when people say to me, um, particularly my non-Christian friends, you know, um, how's the church at the moment? Well, you could answer it um, one of two ways, it seems to me. You could say, well, um, actually, things are pretty good. Things are not bad. Uh, and if you pushed me and said, come on, John, defend yourself, how would you say that? I might say to you, well, we've got more evangelical diocesan bishops now than in the history of the Church of England. Um, I'll name you a dozen if you want me to. We, um, we talk at General Synod about evangelism in an open way that we've never, ever done before. When I first joined General Synod, the E word was a dirty word. Now people can't say it enough. Now, they may not mean exactly what I mean or what you mean, but at least we're talking openly um, about evangelism. We are spending money because we realize that if we don't spend money, the church is going to go over a cliff. I was trying to work it out at General Synod in York in July, exactly how much money we are spending, because no one seems to give you one simple figure. But I calculated something like £350 million over this decade from the figures we were being given. They found an extra 20 um, by changing the way they measured inflation um, at the, in the church commissioners' um, <coughs> meetings earlier this year, which I thought was a very nifty thing. There's a little tip for parish finances. If you can change certain rates, you'll suddenly find some extra money. Um, they literally can't shovel the money out of the door quick enough. I mean, staggering amounts of money are being given um, away. Um, for various projects. And of course, uh, uh, you know, the argument is we've been saying, you know, we could save it for a rainy day or folks look out the window, it's raining today. That's the, that's the logic, the argument. So it's good that money is being spent rather than squirreled away. Um, evangelical colleges by and large, are doing pretty well. So I don't know where, where all of you guys went, um, but Trinity, where I'm a trustee, is thriving. Oak Hill, Wycliffe, Cranmer Hall. You know, those places are doing well in terms of student recruitment um, at this particular time. 
And most parishes, it seems to me, are running something like Christianity Explored or Alpha. So we're seeing parishes engage in evangelistic activity. So there's plenty, you could say, that says, yeah, things are good. Um, however, if you wanted to say things are bad, um, well, um, look at the figures for Sunday attendance. Um, it, again, that's another slightly slippery one because it seems to me the Church of England keeps on changing the way it measures everything. And you know for sure when people change the way they measure something, that's because they don't like the results from the measurement in the first place. So now we're including all week-long services and this and that and the other and all the rest of it. Um, but you can't disguise the fact that Sunday attendance in Church of England churches um, is going down. Um, you can't disguise the fact that um, <clears throat> compared with what used to be the case um, when I was first ordained and certainly when I was a teenager, that the number of young people in churches has literally fallen through the floor. So in the Church of England, there are only 30 parishes where more than 100 people under 16 gather on a Sunday. Only 30. Three zero. Which means that that a dozen dioceses don't have a church where there's 100 young people, which is a frightening um, statistic. Um, I was um, on the recent Crown Nominations Commission for Derby. The statistics for Derby Diocese um, included things like 70% of the churches had no one under 16 on a Sunday. That's a staggering statistic. Um, and, and if you um, take a different statistic, go a different direction, and you talk about multi-parish benefices, um, when I was ordained, 17% of parishes um, were connected with other parishes in one way or another. 17, 1, 7. Do you know what the figure is now? 71. It's switched. It's reversed. Now, just out of interest, how many of you are incumbents of more than one parish? Okay. And how many of you are incumbents of only one parish the others of you got different roles curacies and whatever okay yeah um now you might say what's the big issue john um i i think the big issue is the, the challenge it, ha it has to your capacity because if you're running two or three parishes each with a pcc you suddenly find your work multiplied uh, and you end up spending more time on admin and organization and less time on mission and frontline activity um two or three however might be capable uh, uh, you know, copable with. It's when you get to bigger numbers. So you end up in Norwich Diocese with 17 country parishes. So, you know, 30-odd wardens to, just to connect with and communicate with. Your mind begins to boggle. Um, there are some dioceses, Lincoln Diocese, where, you know, 7, 8, 9, 10 is very, very common. Um, CPS is patron of nearly 700 um, parishes. Uh, a number of ours are in that kind of context. And when we send our letters out, you know, it's lines to describe the parishes that are all part of this one benefit. And we're looking to appoint one person to that place. Uh, and inevitably, that has an impact upon the missional life um, of the church in those areas. So there's plenty of reasons to say things are good. There are also, though, plenty of reasons um, to say things are not so good. And um, the, the way I introduce it that way is so that you don't think I'm entirely a pessimist. 
Um, otherwise, what I want to share with you this morning might make you think that I'm entirely pessimist. I'm not. Uh, and at the end of the day, we do have to remember that the Lord is sovereign and he is good and he can um, bring dead things back to life. He can bring revival. You know, I remind you of those things. You know them. I'm not entirely a pessimist. However, it seems to me that we are looking ahead in a pretty bad shape right now. Uh, and it's those things that I want, therefore, to unpack for you um, this morning. And what I'm going to do is offer you, um, this is my little running order, I'm going to offer you three kind of sections, something just about timelines to make sure that you're up to speed in terms of how we've got to this place over human sexuality and what's happening over the next 12, 18 months rolling forwards. Secondly, uh, I want to offer you some comments about the landscape about the big picture change that's going on, something about what I call facts on the ground uh, and yellow flags. I'll explain what um, they are. Uh, and then thirdly, I want to talk about how, why, how we might respond well. And I want to offer you um, just the, the summary of a biblical perspective. I want to use the language of good discussion, protest, and differentiation. Uh, and I want to make some suggestions to you about what, what it might be um, to be well prepared um, for, for what is happening and what is to happen um, in the months and next couple of years um, to come. So let's, let's start with these um, timelines, a brief history and looking ahead. Um, how do we get from there to here with regard to human sexuality? Why do we suddenly find ourselves now discussing things that, again, when I was ordained, I would never imagine we would have discussed? Why do we find ourselves now at a point where we could end up doing, undoing um, some of the canonical foundations of the Church of England, some of the core doctrines uh, of creation, of fall, of uh, Christian anthropology? What, why have we got um, into that particular place. Well, I'm not going to talk you through those, but those, if you like, are some of the significant dates. And what's that, what that is meant to indicate to you is that actually this, this has been bubbling for some time. So if you go back to 1987, and um, the to Tony Higton, some of you remember the name, he was a vicar in um, Chelmsford Diocese, Essex. Um, he managed to put a motion before the General Synod that enabled the General Synod to rehearse its, if you like, biblical or traditional understanding um, about um, sexuality. Um, the 1991 document issues and the 1999 documents from our archbishops, they essentially rehearsed uh, a traditional or biblical um, understanding. Um, it was from 2003 that things began to get um, much more interesting, as it were. Um, that's um, Plus Reading is obviously Bishop of Reading. That was when Geoffrey John um, was um, offered the Bishopric of Reading. And if you remember anything of your history, uh, a whole group of evangelical clergy um, and non-evangelical clergy working with them in Oxford Diocese um, really pushed back on that and said, we, we, we cannot accept this. Uh, and as a result, Geoffrey John was asked to step aside and to return the invitation he received. Um, 2005, House of Bishops' statement on civil partnerships. 2012, you're familiar with Pilling. I guess most of you have come across the dissenting statement. Just, just show me if you've either seen or heard of the dissenters. You know, okay, from Keith Sinclair, the Bishop of um, Birkenhead, um, which took an enormous amount of courage. Um, he swam against the tide there and he said, I can't sign this report. I need to offer a minority um, report, and um, a, a number of us worked with Keith to support him um, in that. In 2015, we started this shared conversations process, and one of my claims to fame is that I think I've been involved in every single level and possible shared conversation. So I've done, I've done it in the diocese, I've done it between dioceses, I've done it on General Synod. I have done more listening 
since 2015 than perhaps I ever did uh, before 2015. Um, I've heard um, everybody out on everything they want to say. Um, I've wined and dined with the leading LGBT activists on um, Synod. Um, I think I've done my bit of shared um, conversation. And if you remember, well, I was going to say, you remember why that was set up, and um, there are two views on that. One is it was so that we could all understand each other. The other was to kick the whole thing into the long grass. I'll leave it to you as to which way um, you want um, to read that. Um, in 2017, um, if you remember, the House of Bishops tabled at the February General Synod there um, a teaching document um, which um, essentially supported a, a biblical or traditional view of human sexuality. Uh, I say essentially because one or two people questioned one or two bits of it, but by and large, that, that's, that's what it was. Um, that was rejected by the House of Clergy. The bishops obviously supported it. It was their own document. The House of Laity supported it. It was the House of Clergy who kicked it out. Um, and that led, um, on a Thursday afternoon, in February to this phrase, radical inclusion. Um, we didn't know the phrase was being invented that afternoon. I remember sitting with one of the bishops in the tea room at General Synod and said, what are the archbishops going to do now? And this bishop said to me, well, they'll probably write a letter to everybody um, saying what's going to happen going forwards. And I said, and will the House be consulted on that? Probably not, said this bishop. And in fact, that was the case. And suddenly this phrase, radical inclusion, emerged and they expressed a commitment to it. Um, I, I mean, my take is that's not been helpful. Um, because it was not defined, um, you can make it mean what you want to. Um, and when you can make words mean what you want to, there's all kinds of things that all kinds of people can trip over. Uh, and I wonder whether, if they had the opportunity to write that letter again, whether they would still include it, or whether on high, with hindsight they might take that phrase out. But um, they'll... They, I'm sure, when they write their memoirs, will explain that. Uh, at the same time, um, LLF, Living in Love and Faith, was launched. Now, th this is the big thing we're working on at the moment, and I'm going to show you a slide that just explains how this is going to go forwards. Um, Living in Love and Faith has been described in various ways. Um, I asked a question at General Synod um, soon after it was launched of the Archbishop, and um, I asked um, what, what the nature of this project and resource was going to be. And... Um, essentially the answer came back, well, it's a map of the territory. Now, that was a surprise to some people because I think a lot of people thought, okay, this is a process by which the church will discern what God's take on identity, gender, and homosexuality is. Quite clearly, it is not going to be the church's take on. It is going to be a massive compendium of different views. Um, in other words... It's pilling plus all the working behind it, if we can put it that kind of way. Um, it's going to be very interesting to see how it's pulled together. The whole process is being chaired by the Bishop of Coventry, Christopher Coxworth, who is absolutely orthodox in his theology on, on these kind of issues. And there are people on the chairing group like Andrew Goddard um, and others who similarly um, are committed to um, an orthodox view on these issues. But there are others who are not. So quite how they're going to pull that together, what the overall shape, um, how it's going to be written up, those kind of questions are, are as yet um, uh, unresolved. Um, we'll come back to that in just a second. Um, so that was launched in 2017. Um, in 2017, July, we had two significant motions at General Synod. Um, one was um, about conversion therapy, CT, um, and General Synod um, basically expressed its um, 
opposition to conversion therapy. Um, unfortunately, that's another one of these phrases that if it's defined, um, can be helpful. If it's not, um, it often isn't. So if you said to me, um, are you for or against the use of electro uh, electroconvulsive therapy to address issues of human sexuality? I think I'd say I'm against that. I, I don't think there's any evidence that that works. In fact, it can be phenomenally harmful. But if you said to me, can God change the sexual orientation, preferences and desires of an individual? I'd say, amen, he can. So it depends what the question is and what you refer to when you use the phrase conversion therapy. So Synod, I think, got itself into a little bit of a mess because we've passed a motion without defining our terminology. We did the same thing, trans. This was the motion um, uh, to welcome transgender people into our churches. Now, again, if you think about it, this is a complete and utter nonsense. You know, if someone walks to the door of my church on a Sunday morning, my first words are, welcome. It's nice to see you. Now, let's, let's be blunt. It could be Jack the Ripper, for all I know. But isn't our first duty, unless we know it's Jack the Ripper and his presence represents a serious threat to people, isn't our first duty to say, welcome, good to see you. You know, you don't quiz everybody on the door before you decide to say welcome or not. You know, our instinct, the gospel is, you know, come in, come in. Um, so we, we got ourselves into a real mess um, in that debate um, because um, welcome was taken to mean affirm. It was taken to mean um, allow people to have positions of leadership in the church. It was taken to mean all kinds of things. I mean, it was a dog's dinner of emotion. It really was a bad motion. And um, I thought we'd managed to um, bury it. Um, by asking the obvious questions, um, how many genders does the Church of England think there are? And who, dis and who does the Church of England think decides what gender you have? Um, we raised those questions, they were brushed to one side, and the whole thing went through really on a desire to have a headline that read, Church of England welcomes transgender people. So another dog's dinner um, at General Synod. Um, and um, out of that, Last Christmas came this House of Bishops guidance on the welcome of transgender people. Um, you'll, have, you'll have read that. You'll have seen the debate. Um, we, we, we thank God for people like Ian Paul, who has really got the, you know, got a grip on this uh, and has been pushing back. He's met with several of the bishops. Um, he's advocated on behalf of those 3,000 or so, and some of you may have signed that letter um, in support uh, of, of him and um, others who were working with him. Um, it, that's been a lovely example of how the most unlikely bunch of people have worked together for the sake of the gospel. So you've got a Catholic archdeacon in Chichester Diocese. You've got people like Prudence Daly, who's chief exec of the Prayer Book Society, although there's nothing wrong with that, is there, Lee? Um, and um, <laughs> and um, people like Ian Paul. What a motley crew um, working together um, to speak truth to power. Um, it's been lovely um, to see. So do pray um, for Ian Paul um, and people like that. So that's a little bit of how we've got here. Sorry if I've um, simply told you what you already um, know. Um, but look, let's look for a second, um, just a little bit ahead, um, at these two um, pictures. And I'm going to need to stand here if I'm not in your way just to see those. Um, you'll see for 2019, um, where are we now? September. Um, the College of Bishops is about to um, uh, see and have a conversation about some of the draft resources that are going to be part of this.
Um, later in the year, the House of Bishops um, is going to try and take a view on this. Now, straight away, let me say, I think that's a very, very rapid timetable. I don't see how the College and the House are going to take a measured and thoughtful view, A, because these are still in draft format, and B, because what I'm told by bishops again and again is they have too short a time um, at these meetings for weighty things. So, you know, the Church of England and sexuality, 11 o'clock, 11.20, next topic. <laughs> you know, you think, you, it, just, it just can't happen like that. And unless they have substantially changed their normal timetabling, um, they're not going to be able to take much of a view on these resources. When we get into 2020, um, uh, we apparently are going to have some opportunity to engage with resources. Um, again, we're not quite sure what, what that means. Um, the May House of Bishops, um, you can see as it's written up there, to discuss, pray, reflect on the way forward. In, uh, in July, General Synod, again, we're told, engage with resources. I mean, that's a, a catch-all phrase. You know, at this stage, I don't think they know what that means, let alone do we know what that means. Um, and then the interesting thing is that then the idea is that next autumn, these resources will be made available and parishes will be asked to engage with them. Now, I have no idea how that's going to happen because to issue a set of resources and to enable parishes to engage with them is a major, major project. Uh, and I don't think really any substantial thought has been given to date as to how that's actually going to happen. There are people who are working industriously on this, um, and there's one particular person who's holding a lot of this together called Ava John, um, who's uh, an, an evangelical theologian, so do pray for Ava John. Um, but even though the likes of her are working on this incredibly hard, I don't see how they're going to prepare that so that next autumn we can use them well in parishes. But watch out for the space and we'll see what happens. Question, Tom. At, at that stage, John, as far as you know, will it be use the published resources or use a draft of the resources to feed back to the process again? I don't know. No, okay. no sorry. Yeah. Um, and then December 2020, the House of Bishops, it is suggested, will discern um, the next steps. <laughs> now, I, I mean, I think the timetable as a whole is, is massively concertinaed. I, I think the only way we could hit those targets is by simply scratching surfaces rather than um, digging deep. Um, but, you, you know, we'll, we'll see what happens and we'll, um, we'll push through. Um, as to whether the House of Bishops actually will be able to discern any next steps, uh, I mean, again, you, you know, let, let, let's be really honest. We, we have a substantial fracture in the Church of England over these issues. So unless they've got a number of rabbits up their sleeves, you know, how are they going to discern the next steps? Um, unless it's going to be to put the big issue on the table. Do we go left or do we go right? What do you think, folks? They could, they could do that, and that in a sense would be the most honest thing to do. But I suspect that's what they won't want to do because there are very few bishops and there are certainly no archbishops who want to see the Church of England separate or schism or fracture under their watch. Just a, a question you've outlined with this, and it is noticeable how short those time frames are. In your opinion, do you think that this is a genuine exercise that is being worked through properly, or is this that someone has already set an agenda and this is a timetable that will be railroaded through next year? I, I think a number of the people who are working on this are genuinely working on it. So again, I've mentioned to you 
um, Andrew Goddard, there's people like Sean Doherty. There are others who are saying, um, you know, if, if, if a biblical anthropology is being contended for, we're in there. We want to contribute to this. We want to put truth on the page. So there are people who are genuinely giving their very best. Um, I, I, don't, I don't think the end conclusion is, is already agreed or on the table. No, I don't think it is. I think the politics of it, if you want me to give a more um, political take, is um, we, we currently have an archbishop who I think his real passion is the communion, the global perspective. And I think his eyes are on Lambeth 2020, and I think a lot of this timetable revolves around Lambeth 2020. Um, that's my take. I could be wrong, but that's my take. Um, and I think Justin feels that if um, he can persuade the Lambeth Conference that the Church of England is still holding on to some kind of biblical take on these issues, then it can be a good Lambeth Conference. Um, and by the time the next one comes around, he'll be writing his books and doing whatever retired archbishops do. But that is slightly cynical, forgive me. Um, let, let's keep mulching on, um, because that was all just really by way of introduction, and look at the time already. Um, surveying the landscape. Let me offer three different kinds of comment. The first is this. Um, there are significant overarching changes happening, um, um, and against which the Church of England is having um, this discussion. So you will be aware that there is a massive cultural sea change um, in Western society. If you've not read Tim Keller's book on preaching on the five narratives of the current time, um, it's well worth a look at them. Really insightful as to um, how Western society is different to how it was um, 25 years ago. We are seeing, secondly, um, on a wide scale, a resurgence of the liberal hermeneutic um, in the C of E, and in particular in the use of experience. Um, you know, we used to talk about scripture, reason, and tradition. Um, I, I've often found myself having to point out to people they're not three equals. Scripture's supposed to be preeminent, but inevitably we look at scripture through our experience and by employing reason. But we've added a fourth now, experience. And in fact, experience trumps the other three. So at General Synod, I remember a number of years ago, Anthony Thistleton, you remember Anthony Thistleton? Okay, a number of you. I remember one day he stood up and he gave, I think it was a three-minute speech on why um, practising same-sex sexual relationships were not in keeping with Scripture. I sat there in complete awe, thinking, I hope that one day I might be able to make a speech like that. It was... Um, Informed, erudite, biblical, concise, compelling, convincing, inspirational. It was everything. And then he sat down, and the next 20 speakers totally ignored what he'd said and just told their experience, and we lost the debate. Experience has trumped, you know, theological reason um, in, in the synodical process. Um, don't underestimate the active lobbying um, within the Church of England. There are in particular a couple of individuals who are being sponsored full-time in order simply to, to be liberal lobbyists um, over this particular um, issue. 
Um, within the evangelical constituency, there are a number of things that at a macro level um, are significant. Um, the decline of the quiet time. Now, I noticed that I think, Andrew, you used that word this morning, didn't you? Yeah. Um, that's not a word that we hear regularly used, even in evangelical churches. Um, we have a lot of what I call Bible teaching, but with biblical teaching, but without Bible teaching. So, you know, I can preach a message that is entirely in creeping with Scripture, but you've not really learned anything about Scripture in the hearing of that message. Uh, and we have, particularly in our younger people's generations, we have a need to teach them the Bible as well as to give them biblical teaching, um, something that we're, we're short on. Um, and, of course, um, there is a, the, a rise of what we call revisionism, even within the evangelical constituency, um, over two issues, really. One is the authority of Scripture. I noticed that Martin Percy, who would not call himself an evangelical, and I would certainly not call, himself an, call him an evangelical, um, he was comparing Scripture with a fax. Um, and I thought, mm, I'm not sure this is really helpful. Um, you know, it raises questions around authority, whatever. Uh, and, of course, the, whole, the, the, the current big mantra, you know, th there are different ways to read the same scripture. Um, that, that, that was the thing that Pilling put on the table. That's the thing that people are using now to invite you to rethink what you've always thought from any particular scripture. You know, yes, I know you can read it that way. I know you've always read it that way. But, you know, you could read it this way. Um, that, that's part and parcel um, of what I want to call um, revisionism. So those things are going on um, uh, right across the board, uh, and they're significant. They are impacting um, individuals and the church as a whole. Um, in terms of facts on the ground, and um, the Gulliver picture is important here because you will know the story of Gulliver, that if enough small threads are wrapped around you, the end result is it's as if there is a massive rope tied around you you can't move uh, and what's been happening in recent times is that a number of what I call facts on the ground um, have been established so you'll be familiar with the stories of cathedrals welcoming pride marshes you will have heard about the Hereford and Blackburn motions um, in Chelmsford we had an issue with the Bishop of Chelmsford over um, prayers for same-sex couples in a Eucharistic setting I'll come back to that in just a second um, Bath and Wells Diocesan Synod turned up last year to find inclusive leaflets on every seat. Um, there are cathedrals flying pride flags. There's the Ad Clarums in Lichfield and Oxford recently. Um, the most, one of the most recent ones is there's quite a concern in Portsmouth Diocese because the new Archdeacon of the Isle of Wight was introduced um, to diocesan clergy in a letter, um, a letter that really celebrated his partnership um, with another man. Um, once upon a time, you may have had a new archdeacon of the Isle of Wight who had a partner, but nothing would have been said about it. Um, the difference is that it's now celebrated and headlined. Um, these, these things, these facts on the ground, are shaping um, the theology and culture and practice of the Church of England. Um, and then thirdly, I want just to... Um, uh, note one or two what I call yellow flags. For those of you who are not familiar with yellow flags, in F1, in Formula One racing, if they fly a yellow flag, it means watch out, trouble ahead. Um, debris on the track, um, something like that. Um, so here's just a few that I, I think we need to be um, aware of. Um, what I call the Trojan horse of unity. Um, you know, what are we united in? I mean, this idea that, you know, we're united because we're Anglicans... It's kind of true, but kind of irrelevant. 
um, at the same time. You know, you have to be united in something. You can't just be um, united. The spread of revisionism, you know, I mentioned, um, linguistic mirages. Um, y y we've invented some amazing terms in the Church of England in recent times, um, and they look and sound great, but when you actually get closer up to them, they somehow don't help, they disappear, they don't um, deliver. We just need to watch out for them. Um, the liberal lobby, again, just don't underestimate how active the liberal lobby is at a national level. Um, so one or two of you may have noticed in recent times there's been a lot of muck spreading around the CNC. So um, a church warden from Sheffield, Jane Patterson from Fullwood Church in Sheffield, um, her name's been dragged through the press, um, accused of withholding um, declarations of interest, um, complete and utter nonsense. Um, and she's been completely exonerated by the group that was meant to kind of look at these things. But, you know, when you, when you throw a load of mud around, some of it sticks. Uh, and there's a lot of mud throwing um, in that kind of way. Um, there is a, um, it's not always a coordinated lobby, um, but there is a very active lobby um, from the Liberal um, constituency. Um, the younger generations, um, it seems to me we have a whole swathe um, of younger people growing up in evangelical churches who haven't yet got a real handle on the substance of some of these issues. Um, so that's because some churches are not teaching them. Uh, for others, it's because the, the weight of the contemporary culture in which they're growing up is enormous. Um, it, we need to watch out um, for that. Um, the need for a winsome orthodox narrative. We have to be honest, we've not always been good at explaining why good news is good news. Uh, and we've sometimes told people what the fences are, what the boundaries and ba barriers and boundaries are, but we've not always told people why it's really helpful to have a fence around your garden, because actually the garden looks so good. You know, and what's so good about the garden when it's protected and preserved against um, whatever? Um, I'll come back to Darson's structures, that kind of stuff, and I'll come back to that bottom one um, in just um, a moment. So let me just for five minutes very quickly, and then we'll have some questions. Let me say a couple of things about um, these. Um, first of all, um, a biblical perspective. I have found increasingly over the last three or four years now, um, I've been drawn to both reading and speaking on Daniel again and again. Um, not because we can in any way compare our experience with Daniel's. He was literally ripped out of his homeland, taken to a foreign land, uh, and, and made a slave. Okay, he had a comfortable life, but he was a slave, in essence. Um, that's not our experience. Um, but it does sometimes feel as though we are in an increasingly exilic um, place. So there's dissonance between what we believe to be true and the cultural narratives of the time. There is a sense of powerlessness. We can't stop the tide that's sweeping in. Um, and indeed, we are going to be um, persecuted. Okay, again, in a very, very minor way compared with Christians in Iran. Okay, let's be clear about that. You know, my persecution is nothing compared to Christians in North Korea or China. Um, but we are, in our own way, going to experience opposition and persecution. I've already been told to my face by a member of General Synod that um, when the time is right, I will be thrown out of the Church of England. There is no room for me um, in the future um, Church of England. Uh, and we need, if we're going to you know, copy the Daniel response, we need the grace to know how to bless even those who, as it were, uh, uh, are against us. Uh, we need to hold on um, to hope. We need to remind ourselves that um, God is faithful. 
and we need to bring hope to those that we have responsibility for. Uh, and we need the discernment to know when to contend and when not to contend. Daniel was a master of that, as far as I can see um, from the text. So we need to have a biblical perspective um, on what is happening um, at the moment. I think we also need um, to, um, what I like to call, we need to discern what kind of a journey we on or where are we at, both as individuals and in terms of the churches that we serve. It seems to me that an awful lot of Orthodox evangelical churches have not yet even had a good discussion about these things. A lot of churches are very fearful of teaching and speaking and talking about these things and for all kinds of reasons. Um, but if you haven't even had a good discussion, it's very difficult to move beyond that to anything else. So I'm saying to churches, you know, you need to ask a question about how can we have a good discussion about these things in a way that will work for us? And that doesn't always mean Sunday sermons. In fact, a lot of churches are finding that's not the most helpful way to really dig um, over these issues. Um, secondly, um, good protest. Um, that's good protest. Good differentiation. Um, now, in, in the olden days, the immediate thing was, let's not pay the parish quota. Let's hold that back. I, I'm not sure that's the smartest move, because the narrative on that is, oh, evangelicals are mean. Evangelicals are this. Evangelicals are that. Um, I think you need you and I and we need to be more subtle in the way we do. Now, I could tell you lots of other stories, but again, you see, I think that's good differentiation. He's worked out what my issue is. My issue is the cathedral. So I'm not going to break fellowship with the bishop. It's about the cathedral. How can I do it in a way that um, doesn't unhelpfully create a stink? That was his way. How can you do it with integrity? Um, you, you know, it, it's different in every case, in every context. But that, for me, was someone who thought through the business um, of good differentiation. OK, very quickly, in terms of being prepared, um, pray and understand the times. Um, come back to diocesan, sorry, general synod in a minute if you want to in questions. Support CEC um, and EGS. Um, be prepared as a PCC to contend. We'll raise that if you want to in just a second. I'm going to leave at the back, or actually for coming down. Um, here are some sheets with some books and some <coughs> websites on if you want, if you haven't already done some reading um, on these things. Um, here are a couple of things worth looking at um, on the EGS website. There's a whole library of resources on the EGS website. Just to raise a couple, for example, Tim Keller, a great piece by um, him on these issues. Um, Rick Warren being interviewed by Piers Morgan. Rick Warren destroys Piers Morgan. Beautiful to see. Beautiful to see. Um, number of books that are referred to um, there on your sheet. Uh, and my final comment would be one thing we all can do and one thing we ought to ask our churches to do is to pray, pray and pray. Um, Andrew, I've gone on far too long. I apologise. Let's see if we can squeeze just a couple of questions in. We've certainly got five minutes for questions. So anybody like any Questions for John. Lots to ask there. Yes, Eleanor. Hi. Um, you talked about uh, discussion in churches that haven't been discussing these things, and that might not always be best done in the Sunday morning sermon. And um, so, if you know churches that are doing this and um, who haven't been doing it before and haven't been doing it in the Sunday morning sermon, how are they doing it? Um, well, a couple of ways. You could, for example, download a video from the Living Out website, circulate it around house groups and say, can we watch this video and discuss it together? Um, Amanda, Dep depending on the quality of your home group leaders. Okay. That's, that's quite a hard it is ask a problem. for a home group leader, yeah. actually. Yeah, it you is. You could do it and be at the home groups. You could, yeah. You could... Um, uh, I've been to a couple of churches where 
the PCC has convened, and I've made a presentation to the PCC, then we've had a conversation about it, so you might want to do it that way. Um, you might, um, incumbents could circulate just single chapters to significant leaders in the church and say, could I ask you to read this chapter? It raises some important questions. Um, Amanda is editing a study guide, um, which is to be published this autumn. Yeah. Um, on Glorify God in Your Bodies, which was a CEC publication from Martin Davey. Um, so that'll be something you could provide house group leaders with. Um, you could, one of the churches I was involved in recently is considering having three evenings, Wednesday evenings, over three consecutive months, where you know an incumbent or someone else introduces these things because of the exact problem Andrew's talking about. So it's just a case of being a little bit creative like that. Or look out for living out events and take people to that. Th those kind of things are some of the opportunities. Or, or raise it on a Sunday carefully so that you get to set the agenda and then clear your diary that week. <laughs> so you've planned it six months in advance. Mm. You know you're going to preach Romans yeah. 1. and I'm preaching Romans 1 in March four chunks i know what happens in the fourth chunk of romans one they've got three brilliant bits in the glory of the gospel then they get the second half of romans one my diary's empty that week and i'll be around everybody's houses i'll be around all the home groups there'll be a meeting on monday lunchtime on wednesday evening and anybody who can't make one of those two meetings come and ask their questions i'll say just let me know times you can meet and we'll meet so i actually think there's a wisdom in letting the bible set the agenda from the pulpit the pulpit's the prow of the ship so let the bible set the agenda from the pulpit but be wise and just empty a diary. Good tip. Yeah. Uh, I'm wondering what your thoughts are on how we can encourage those, our peers, those in authority above us, who are orthodox on these issues, but risk averse when they come to teaching. Apart from just reading through the ordinal again with them and reminding them of covenant promises they took in the presence of God and his people, which is a fairly obvious kind of first prayer or start, yeah, right? Yeah. Yeah. yeah, you need more than that. So more than just let your yes be yes and no be no. Yeah. Are, are you thinking of incumbents it's or hard, bishops or who? Uh, incumbents, yeah. Incumbents. Um, you can answer that one. Yeah. Uh, let me be blunt. It's probably not your responsibility to tell your incumbent what to do. So I think I would say um, make a note of what you'd love your incumbent to do and put it on file for when you're an incumbent and then read it again and go from there. That's not a cop-out, it's a genuine comment. And when you're an incumbent, on that note, it'll say, every six months, ask your curate what they think you're getting wrong. Yeah. Be teachable as an incumbent, because it's really annoying when your incumbent yeah. isn't, so don't ever be that incumbent. Yeah. So make sure that there are pressurised weeks. It's December. Yeah. We're not having a big argument in December about what I'm getting wrong, but in February, we're going for a fry-up, and I'm just going to say, Andrew, now, if you were me, are there two or three things you'd be doing differently? So you make sure you ask those open-ended questions when your curer and you are relaxed. You've got a bit of paper there, and you make sure you let your curer off the leash on a regular leash on a regular basis, because you want to be trainable. You want to learn from positive example and from negative example from your training income. It, it does raise a, a, a substantial question um, about how we do relate to people who are in authority over us, doesn't it? Um, and you said incumbents. You could have asked the same about bishops. Um, one of my, because I had several diocesan bishops, one of my diocesan bishops was um, John Gladwin, who once upon a time was an evangelical. Um, mm. By the end of his episcopal um, uh, position, he was chair of changing attitude. Um, 
people asked me in my parish, why, why do you still talk to the bishop? You know, why are you still in relationship with the bishop? Um, and my answer was normally, well, he's never asked me to do anything that is against scripture, and he's never stopped me doing anything that I think scripture commands me to do. So I'm not responsible for him. I am responsible for myself. Um, now, again, you might call that a cop-out. Um, at the moment, we're in a place where some bishops, the House of Bishops, may, according to how LLF goes, they may be asking me to do things that I don't feel in according to scripture, I can do. And that then puts me in a different place. But I've never assumed that I'm responsible for the House of Bishops or the Archbishops. They'll answer to God, not to me. Which is a helpful caveat on the question about your incumbent, because the question about your incumbent comes back to your view on eldership. So if you think your fellow elders together, then you have a different relationship with your incumbent as fellow elders than you do if you think he's the boss and there's a bunch of five or six other elders. So actually the, the question about how you might speak with your incumbent is to clarify very early on whether you are fellow elders serving in an eldership that he chairs or whether he is the bishop. Do you see what I mean? Whereas if you're fellow elders, then actually, of course, you're going to mutually correct all the time. I'm going to pray, then Ros is going to give notices. Thanks, John. Okay. And um, John has promised not to leave before he's answered all your questions to your own satisfaction. <laughs> ha haven't you, John? Of course, Andrew. Of course. <laughs> <laughs> so he'll be here till Friday. Uh, let's pray. Father, we praise you that your gospel is powerful. Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it's the power of God for the salvation of all who believe. Uh, we praise you that we see that gospel power in ourselves, for you've changed our stubborn minds and melted our cold hearts. You've taken hearts of stone and given us hearts of flesh. We see ourselves as walking miracles and witnesses to the glory and power of your gospel. And we keep on praying for your gospel to be powerful at work in those who believe it, that they might stand on every truth in your word. And your gospel might be powerful at work in those who don't yet believe it, that, that by receiving Christ as Savior and Lord, they might joyfully and willingly submit themselves to all of his teaching. We pray for this ongoing miracle in our own lives, the lives of our congregations, and the lives of all those involved with the Church of England, so that by the power of your gospel, we might be a faithful church for generations to come. And we pray that we'll be rightly confident in the gospel's power as we contend, knowing that you're the sovereign Lord of history, uh, and that with that confidence uh, and with that gospel joy, uh, we might go forward into 2020 and beyond. And we pray for John and the very many others who give leadership on that, that you'll renew them each day in their quiet times and in their prayers, that they will love resting on you, that they and all who contend will contend just like Jesus, knowing that that will be a pleasing aroma to some and a stench to some too, but knowing that that's the work of your Spirit in us to make us like your Son. So we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.